Well, thank you. Worship team and choir. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7 to begin with today. That's page 245. Second Samuel 7. Thursday morning, uh, I was on the freeway. This was the, the morning after that terrible wind. And uh, the crosswind was still strong enough that on the freeway it still felt like, you know, it's pulling me over uh, to the side. And I was thinking about uh, times when I've been on my motorcycle with strong crosswinds or headwinds because, I mean, then you really feel it. It wants to, to blow you around. And then I thought of some times I've been on my bike and I've been going with a strong wind. When you ride a motorcycle with a strong wind, it's almost eerily quiet, peaceful, stable, effortless. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when we are living frustrated, it could be because we are riding crosswind with what we know God wants. And it will be turbulent when it's something that we know that this is the direction God wants us to go and we've chosen otherwise. I bring that up because today as we're thinking about David, 1000 BC, uh, he was a man that's described both in the Old Testament and New Testament with this little phrase. He was a man after God's own heart. In other words, his heart was facing the, the same direction as God's. Not to say it doesn't mean there's going to be trouble, but he's always going the same direction. And at times when David did not go the same direction of, as God, he corrected and came back to going the same direction. Uh, in our study today, we're going to look at how God blessed David with the privilege that his descendant would be the one to sit on the forever throne of David, as it's called. He would be the forever king, and we know that, of course, to be Jesus Christ. A little bit of a review of where we've come these last couple of weeks, prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. We're getting, getting a big picture sweep of time and scripture and, and where Jesus and where we fit into it. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin, but God has a plan of salvation. And in Genesis 12, he reveals that plan is going to be running through a person named Abraham. It's 2000 BC and what's called the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I'm going to bless you uh, Abraham and make a great nation out of you. That's the nation of Israel. But specifically, I'm going to bless all the world through you individually. And we find out in the New Testament that the way in which that was fulfilled is that it's Abraham's descendant, Jesus, who spiritually has blessed all of us. Then last week, we moved on to Genesis 29 and discovered that Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Specifically, it narrows down to one tribe, Judah, which is the kingly tribe. And God said through uh, Jacob's prophetic words that the scepter will never depart from Judah. So we know that this king, coming king 
is going to come through the tribe of Judah. And then we also went to the book of Micah where we find that uh, prophecy that the one who will rule forever and who has always existed will actually be coming from the city of Bethlehem, which is known as David's town. And so we're going to see today the fulfillment of those promises the giving of those promises and the fulfilling of those promises of Christ coming from the line of David. And so we will see that, of course, Jesus is born as the son, descendant of David. But the emphasis, actually, of most of these prophecies is how one day Jesus will be the king forever on David's throne. So he comes not only to save, which is rightly the most important thing that we understand Jesus did, because that's what brings salvation to the whole world, but he also comes to one day be the eternal king of Israel and king of kings. In 2 Samuel 7, where we step into this uh, narrative, It is, like I said, about 1,000 B.C., and King David is the king. He's the second king of Israel once the monarchy began. The first king was King Saul. King Saul and King David were spiritually different because King Saul was all about Saul. And you find his life filled with turbulence because he just couldn't follow what the Lord had said to do. But David was all about God, and that is what distinguishes him. So as we pick it up here in verse 1 and 2 and 3, we find that David's kingdom now has been established. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. You know, this isn't right. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. David had achieved with God's strength, and he, he, he gave God all the credit. He had, had victory over his surrounding enemies. There was peace in the land. He built this beautiful palace. But God's ark, the centerpiece of worship, was still in the tabernacle or tent. He said, we need to build a permanent temple building for for God, And it was a spiritually sincere desire. It was a good thing. But then, and if even the Nathan the prophet agreed, right? But, verse uh, 4, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet saying, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house, he goes on to say. I, I've never asked for it, verse 7. Wherever I have moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house? It was like David wanted to give a gift that God wasn't asking for. I wasn't asking for a house. So God surprisingly turns down this offer, not because it was a bad thing, but it wasn't the direction that God had for David. Have you ever found yourself with a desire to serve God that doesn't pan out? Because this is the way you wanted to serve him. And it was a good thing. It seemed like surely God's going to you know, take up me on my offer to serve him this way. And it, somehow it doesn't work out and it surprises us, it disappoints us, uh, it humbles us. 
we might, we might resent it because we feel rejected somehow. But here's the thing. We have to learn one way or another that we are not in charge even of our own lives and that God is in charge. Even in the good things that we want to do. And if, if our plans don't work out, what does that mean? It means that God has better plans. So what would be the better plan of God for David? Jump to the middle of verse 11 here. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. I, I like it when, when, when God speaks with a kind of a metaphor or play on words. He says, you want to build me a house? Meaning a temple, a building, you know, to worship in? Nope, that's not my plan. I'm going to build you a house, and a house here meaning family, lineage, an ongoing dynasty is what he was promising him. Every dynasty starts with the first step or the next generation, verse 13. He is the one, the one who will come from your body. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And indeed, Solomon this refers to. Solomon would build the temple. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And here's the first time we hear this word, forever. This, this, this house, this family, this dynasty is going to be forever. It will be his father. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, still referring to Solomon, I will punish him with the rod of men and floggings inflicted by men. And indeed, when Solomon fell into sin, he was disciplined by God. But, verse 15, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And now here comes the, 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 the climax of this promise. David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever verses 15 and 16 communicate to us that this promise of god is unconditional and this is eternal that a descendant of david would forever reign on david's throne hmm well, David is blown away by the forever part because it's exactly what any king would desire. To know that he's not a one-and-done king, but my son, his son, their son, that we will be kings forever. Now, it seems to us, as we, if you know the rest of the Old Testament, it seems that this didn't really happen because uh, this is 1,000 B.C., but in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and took took the people captive, and there wasn't actually a, a, a descendant of David from that point on ruling, but it was a promise. And though there was not somebody ruling specifically, there will be a king forever because Christmas is coming. David responds to this promise. Basically, in verses 18 to 29, a whole prayer of praise saying, you know, who am I, verse 18? Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What's my family that you brought us this for? You know, wh why, would you, why would you bless me? And yet in his prayer, we get a hint of why God indeed blessed David with this. Jump to verse 25, part of this prayer of praise. And now, Lord God, keep 
forever. We're going to see this word forever. Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised. Here's why. So that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Or verse 29, now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, all the, the house of your servant will be blessed forever, forever. This is repeated, but what do you see in verse 26 is on the heart of David. It's that God's name would be great. That's what distinguishes David. He was always going the direction God was, which is God's glory, God's praise, that his name would be great. David understood that God made the universe so that God would be praised. And our temptation is that we live our lives in a little bubble, kind of our own little universe, as if God created the universe so that we could be more comfortable, we would be successful, and hopefully people will make our name great. And that's not the way the universe that God created is designed. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is our heart aligned with God? That we want people to know through our life that God is great. To be aligned with God means that, that he would know that is our motive because God sees within the inner reaches of our motivation that I, is where the, what's the direction of our, of our heart. Even, even take something as simple as, I'm glad you came to church today, but ask yourself why you came to church today. Was it your reasons for why this would be a good thing to do today for you? Or do we come because this is what would honor God? Do you see the, the profound but subtle, the subtle but profound switch of heart? Why do I do even the good things that I do? Does it come from a heart that I want God to be praised for what he did? So, does. So, so to know why God chose David's line, we have to understand just how God-centered David really was. The best proof is open up the book of Psalms. Most of them written by David. Many of them that don't even have his name on them probably were written by David. And I was thinking this week, for all the words of praise that David actually wrote down for us, how much other time did David spend praising God when he wasn't writing it down? Evidently, this man was consumed with the centrality, the supremacy the person of God whom he honored. So that even when, going from chapter 7 to chapter 12, you find this horrible chapter of David's life and his sin with Bathsheba and the, the murder of, of her husband. And you wonder, how could God ever call this man a man after God's own heart? But you find that David fully repented. Against you, you only, I have sinned. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. And you see the grace of God that is poured out on someone who values and returns to the worship 
of Almighty God. He wants God's name to be great. I'm, glad, I'm so glad those chapters on David's life are in there because we're all sinners, right? But do we keep coming back to the direction of making God's name great? That's what he values. So David lived, as I said, about 1,000 B.C. And, and we have these promises in 2 Samuel 7, and, and it's repeated, and so we know there's something to it. We, we could maybe skim past it and, and ignore it, except that as you keep reading the Old Testament, God keeps bringing up this promise about a king on David's throne. And so we're going to take some time to just page through uh, some of the prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Uh, I'm going to put them on the screen. If you want to follow with me, it'd be uh, Jeremiah 23 next and page 635 in our Bibles here. And Jeremiah is writing 400 years after David, so about 600 B.C. And Judah, the remaining southern kingdom, is, still has a Davidic king. But they're on the verge of judgment, and Jeremiah is, is, is largely, largely, it seems like, a, a sad uh, prophecy about how the Babylonians are going to come and God's going to use them to judge Israel. But continually dotted, this, this book is continually dotted with promises of God about a time when God will regather his people, Israel, and bring them to the land, and a descendant of David will be on the throne. Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, 400 years after David this is, I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. It's pretty clear who he's talking about as we look back with our perspective. If David began the family tree, who is the branch? The branch is the descendant Jesus, because who else could be called the Lord, the righteous Savior? But the question arises, when is this? When is it that, that Jesus reigns on the throne and Israel and Judah live in safety and peace? Was this when, uh, when the Jews came back from captivity? Ezra and Nehemiah in our Bible? No, they didn't have a Davidic king, and they, they weren't really living in, in safety. Was this when the New Testament opens and we read the, the account of, of the life of Christ and there's a king in Jerusalem? Who is it? It's not a king, uh, the descendant of David at all. It's, it's the imposter, King Herod, the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, Matthew 2. Or his son, that's Herod the Great, his son Herod Antipas, who, who was the one who made a big joke of it when Jesus was on trial and, and, he, and he, he sent him back to Pilate and then Pilate condemned him to die. It wasn't then. Since Jesus clearly is the one to fulfill these promises, will they be fulfilled and when? They will be fulfilled. There are a whole... Christian traditions and, and teachers who would say these are not going to be fulfilled, but they have been given in an unconditional sense. And we cannot ignore the promises that there will be a throne of David and Jesus will be ruling as promised. Isaiah. 
A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father, so we're in the same. It's a promise about David. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, another biology, right? A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of the wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When did, when did the spirit come upon the righteous branch, the descendant of David, but Matthew 3, when, Jesus, when John baptized Jesus and the Spirit descended like a, bo- a dove upon him and the Spirit indeed rested upon Jesus throughout that uh, earthly ministry. A verse or so later, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. When's that? That didn't happen when Jesus was on earth. But these are words that are repeated for us in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes at the end of the tribulation period and he comes in judgment of all and destroys all the wicked. The same, the same man, the same king, the one on the throne of David, who will be on the throne of David. Still in the same chapter, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. Think about these combination of animals. And a little child will lead these wild animals. Anybody seen that happen? Not yet. A couple of verses later, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, remember, David's father, he will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. When is this? First of all, where is it? What does it say? It's the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Where are the animals? This isn't heaven. This is earth. There's waters of the sea. There's nations. Isaiah 9, as we go to a popular, well-known, or you would say, uh, Christmas verse. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We, 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 we sing this, we, we repeat it at Christmas time because we know who the child is who will be born. And it's Jesus when he comes in his birth. But at the same time, he's going to have the government on his shoulder. Did he take over the government in his first coming? No. And so the very next verse of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on Oh, David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this when this is Jesus in his second coming that he will reign on David's throne. So let's try to put this together. Um, what was it, the summer of 2020, we did a series of studies on prophecy, so I'm going to kind of assume you all remember this sermon a year and a half ago. But uh, if you want to go back and review any of this, feel free to do that. But So we look today now at prophecies made to David, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah in the Old Testament. They are fulfilled when Jesus comes. He comes, he's born, and he comes to die on the cross. He rises again. He came to save the first time. And now we live in the church age, we call it. The New Testament is, is our guide for that. And uh, so here we are in 2021, and we are awaiting the next event 
that Scripture teaches, which is the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. And from that moment on, all believers of this age, those who have died and those of us who are living at that time, will be caught up together and we will be in heaven forever. But there's still life on earth. And so the people who are still here are going to go through what's called the tribulation or great tribulation, which is most of the book of uh, Revelation, is what, it, is what that book is basically about. But it ends, chapter 19, which we referred to already, when Jesus Christ comes to rule, and then comes this 1,000-year period of time, Revelation chapter 20. It's called the millennium because it specifically says it's going to happen, it's going to go for 1,000 years. And then at, after that point, there's a final judgment and all of believers of all time are merged together in heaven then when this final era of earth is complete and we are with him and he reigns as the king of kings and lord of lords. You think about these prophetic truths, it's going to be this millennial uh, kingdom that Jesus will rule. And it can, can seem pretty distant and disconnected from us, you know, what does this have to do with me, for me today? First of all, let's always be careful when we ask that question because scripture wasn't written, first of all, to, to uh, somehow zap us with some powerful truth but to, about us, but rather to teach us about God. So God is the main character, so the real question is to say, what do we learn about God? Because as we learn about God and who he, he is, it does impact our life. Because we need a right understanding of who God is. So what we realize is that Jesus came not only to be our Savior, though that's the big deal of, 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 of the entire plan of God. We can only be saved through Christ who died for our sins and rose again. But one day we have to remember he will reign as king I've been, I've been reading in uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah in the last weeks, and when you, when, you, when you find yourself kind of getting bogged down reading in some of those books, you have to understand you are mostly reading about what's going to happen on earth during that thousand-year millennial kingdom when Jesus is reigning on the throne of David. And so you, that is the description that, that fits all of this. And now that I've been reading that, I've been I'm just kind of thinking... Trying to think of time the way God does. Trying to think of life on earth the way God does. Because he is an eternal God and he sees the whole vast reaches of, of when he created the earth, when he'll destroy the earth, and all these ages in which we live. And suddenly my life looks pretty small. Because even this age of the church that we live in is not the main event. The main event is always that God is glorifying himself in every age. And so the only way my tiny slice of life is going to make sense is if I live for that purpose that extends beyond all the ages. God's not done being glorified when my life is over, when the church age is over. That's the eternal purpose of all that he has made. And so even as I think about when all of us are in heaven, we can be thinking about that God is still going to be glorifying him on this planet. There is a millennial kingdom, and there is like one final 
season or era of time in which God proves who he is, both his grace and his justice. But it'll be the best of times. It'll be a renewed earth, a safe place, a a fruitful place, a prosperous, wonderful earth. And best of all, everybody will know who Jesus Christ is because he's going to be reigning on the throne of David. They will know who he is, whether they worship him or not, because those who survive the tribulation will begin the the millennium. And these people are going to be living lives in bodies like this, even though their lives are going to be longer. It says that if somebody dies at 100, they're going to be thought to be accursed. But there's going to be light. They're They're going to wake up in the morning, and I'm sure they're going to have coffee. They're going to to, uh, fall in love. They're going to have children. But they're all going to know who Jesus is because Jesus is God and he's the one reigning in Jerusalem. It's hard to wrap our mind around an earth like this, but a huge bulk of what you read in these prophets uh, at the end of the Old Testament are about this era of time. I think that'll be a central part of Scripture that people will focus on at that point. But even during that amazing era, sin is present. And so while there will be no public rebellion because Jesus is ruling, there will still be sinners who will privately be rebelling. The beginning of the millennium, chapter 20 of Revelation, the first couple of verses, says that Satan's going to be bound. That will be different. So temptations will no longer come through, orchestrated by Satan, but, Satan, but rather temptation will still come from within. And so some who are born will not worship because they still don't like to be told what to do, and they will not submit to Jesus Christ even if they do outwardly, they won't inwardly. And that's, that's hard for us to conceive of. If they really would know that Jesus is ruling and Picture yourself in the Old Testament. If you, as an Old Testament believer, would have known the situation that you and I are living in, that they only knew that there would be a Messiah coming and God was going to provide for our sin, they'd say, if someone would live when they know who Jesus is, he walked on earth, they got four books in the, in the Bible to tell them exactly what Jesus did, and he died for our sins, he rose again, he's the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, he established the church Surely everybody on earth is going to follow Christ. How's that going? That's the, that's, that's the sinfulness of the human heart. And so there's one more era of time in which mankind is tested in the best of conditions. And at the end of that thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus, it says in Revelation 20, verse 9, I think it is, that Satan's going to be released. And all those who had been privately rebelling now go public and there is a massive movement and they come as a vast army to attack Jesus Christ himself. I think it is, then it's verse 9 of Revelation 20 where God puts an end to that by simply a swoosh of fire and destroys them all. And then he takes Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and he throws them into the lake of fire. And the last piece of this is verses 11 through 15 of of Revelation 20, where then there's a final great white throne judgment where unbelievers of all ages 
are evaluated and judged based on whether their names are written in the book of life. In other words, have they put their faith in what God has provided for them? If not, they are cast in the lake of fire. But everyone whose name is written in the book of life, and then from all generations, all seasons, all ears, dispensations, we're all going to be forever together in heaven, the last two chapters of Revelation. And Jesus will be our king forever and ever and ever and ever. In the words of Handel's Messiah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns forever, forever. Hallelujah, 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 if you've sung the Messiah. And we will worship him forever. So what should we be doing now? Because so often what we're doing and think is such a big deal is only a big deal if it serves to honor him who is forever the big deal. What made David different was he consistently cared about the glory of God and God rewarded him by naming the throne on which Jesus would rule the throne of David. Turn with me to Luke 1. Phase 1 of the Christmas story, you could say. Where now the prophecies of the Old Testament have all been given and written. There's the expectations. It's now time to put into action God's plan to bring the one who will reign on the throne of David forever. And so the angel Gabriel is sent to prophesy to Mary. Gabriel comes, verse 26, to Nazareth. That's where Mary and Joseph live. And the angel greets Mary, which really scares her to death, verse 29 and 30. But here's the message that the angel gives her, starting in verse, uh, well, start verse 30. When, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor or grace with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Teenage girl, angel appears. He says you're going to give birth to a son, name him Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. This is, this is a, a child who's going to be born, who's actually going to be God's son. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's the one. He's the one that your people, Mary, the Jews, have been expecting for centuries. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, and his kingdom will never end. He'll reign over Israel, especially in that millennial kingdom, but his kingdom will then merge into the forever king of kings and and lord of lords. When the angel appeared to Joseph, he emphasized, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. More focused on the immediate purpose of Christ coming the first time 
the cross. He comes to save us. But to Mary, the angel emphasizes he will be the king. So Mary, you've known all these promises as a good Jewish girl trained in the synagogues. They are now going to be fulfilled through your son. Jesus is coming. He's going to save, but he's not just coming to save. He's coming to rule, and he will rule forever. Did Mary comprehend all this at the moment? I, I, I can't imagine that, that she did, though she must have remembered it because Luke was able to write it down uh, as she reported it, we assume. She does what would be the most practical thing we could imagine a teenage girl would do at this point with this revelation. She says, verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Let's be practical. The angel answered, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So you're having a child, but it's actually God who's going to miraculously make this happen. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. That's Elizabeth who's going to bear uh, the son, John the Baptist. Verse 37, here it is. For nothing is impossible with God, even a virgin birth. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to you as you have said. So with these amazing words, Mary basically hears, It's going to be a miracle because that's what God does. And Mary says, I'm all in. (laughs) Joseph and Mary are very special people, uh, tasked, privileged with raising the Son of God, the King who would reign on the throne of David. Both of them, Mary and Joseph, were descended from David. And it takes us back to the person of David. Why, why David? Why David? What's so special about him? Who, the people we are going to learn from here are David and, and Joseph and Mary. What, what characterized them? He's a man after God's own heart. This phrase is first found uh, in the Bible about David before he became king. King Saul was ruling, the first king, and he did some good things. But then there was a, a, a pivotal moment there where Samuel the prophet had told Saul prior to a battle with the Philistines, don't do anything until I come and make a sacrifice. The Philistines are gathering and he's getting fearful and you know how we are when we're afraid we end up doing stuff that we know we shouldn't do. And Saul, who as a king and part of the tribe of Benjamin, was forbidden to make sacrifices, ignored what God said through Samuel the prophet, and he made the sacrifice anyhow. And so Samuel had these words for Saul, but now your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's the next king, David. And appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Pretty simple what it means to be a man or a woman or young person after God's own heart. You know what God wants you to do, you do it. Apostle Paul was 
teaching Jews on his first missionary journey in the New Testament. He's in this town called Antioch of Pisidia, and he brings up the same event. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. So as we think about this phrase, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Do we do what we know God wants us to do? Our heart, in the scripture, our heart refers to our motives, our desires. What do you want? What do you want? What do you care about? What drives you to do what you do. And so the example is to have a heart, desires, a drive to do that which is after. The word means to fit or correspond or align with God. So God wants to do something. What does God want to do? And are your desires aligned with God's? If you you have a you go to service your car because something's wrong. You tell them, you know, this, the steering wheel is shaking, you know, it's, or it's veering off to this side or, or something, and it wasn't the wind. Yeah. So, so what, what's going on with my car? They're going to they're gonna put on this machine, and they're going to check your alignment. They've got lasers that, that will give you a readout with precisely which wheel it is. You know, most of the time that I've ever had a shimmy or a shake in a steering wheel, it's been one wheel. And you might say, that's not bad. Three out of four isn't bad, right? That's a pretty good car. And yet one wheel out of alignment, out of balance, is making the whole thing shake and veer to the side dangerously. Because you didn't pay attention to aligning that wheel. So that's the wheel that has to be aligned. And so as we think about alignment with God's heart, Think about a car. I'll give you four areas to think about. Okay? This is just kind of God time, whatever, whatever God says to you in these areas. Are your goals or desires aligned with God's glory? If someone said, you can have anything you want, what would it be? If the, if the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow was yours, what do you want? What are your desires? What, what, what would drive you to the align with God's glory? That, that's going from the innermost to the next level is our thoughts and our attitudes. Often people can't see all those. So if, if your goals and desires are to be aligned with God, then your thoughts will begin to be aligned with, how could I honor God? Whatever it is I'm facing, how can I honor God? Here's, here's a problem, here's a blessing. How can I align these with God's glory? Matthew Henry, I came across this quote this week. He's a Bible scholar from a previous generation. He said, it concerns us to keep a strict watch over our thoughts because God takes particular notice of them. And then he says this, thoughts are words to God. 
thoughts are words to God. Wow, do we honor God with how we think? Because if we do, then it's going to work its way out to things like relationships. Do my relationships align with God's glory? How I treat people either will honor God or not. Our spouse. The question I think is so valuable is, what's it like to be married to me? Have you asked yourself that question? That, that's, that's understanding what the other person is experiencing. What's it like to be my child? Would, would, would the people who know me best characterize me that I am unselfishly devoted to honor God in our relationship? And then it works itself out in action steps with what we end up doing, whether it's in our job or ministries or free time or whatever it is. D does my eagerness to worship, sacrifice, and serve align with God's glory? In other words, the, the things that, I will, that, I will, that are on my calendar, the things that I do that aren't on my calendar, the, the, uh, the, 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 what I do with my money, the, 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 the pr my prayer life, my willingness to help, whatever, whatever it might be, the, the action steps, are they aligned with the glory of God that I want to do it because it glorifies God, and as I do it, I want, I want him to say, well done. God and David were going the same direction. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. And we learn that God certainly notices when our desires match his. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to uh, probe in those places that only you know. Uh, you know the, the journey we've been on. You know where we have failed badly, uh, where our alignment has been long-term, out of line, or, or short-term. You know thoughts, attitudes, relationships. You know it all. And yet we are encouraged that you would uh, take someone like David, even in times of deep failure, and restore him. Because he had a broken and contrite heart, and because he returned to glorify you, because he knew that's what would matter, and that's what, that's what he's praising you for today and so give us lord a much bigger picture of time and a much more clear view of our own life that we might honor the one who forever will reign as king as kings and lord of lords amen